Amendment number one. What happens when your school doesn't like what you say? Today we discuss cheerleader Brandy Levy's victory in the Supreme Court. I'm Peter Jay. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Services, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people navigate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Peter Jay. With me, as always, Representative Jeff Roy, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and, of course, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones. Hello, people. We have a great topic today. We are going to talk about teenagers and the First Amendment. Okay, I'm leaving right now. And the school. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, come back. Wait, Jeff. It's uh, an interesting case, uh, as we're recording this on a Thursday, only the day before, yesterday, the Supreme Court handed down a decision regarding the case involving Brandy Levy in a free speech case over Snapchat. Now, obviously, this got a lot of notoriety, and it's yet another parsing in our modern age with the internet about what exactly are the bounds of free speech, who controls free speech, what is appropriate and inappropriate. As a sidebar, it's interesting to talk about what we try to teach our kids about being on the internet and their internet personas and how they present themselves. And down the road, what all of that means in terms of their futures and careers. That said, I think we can dive right into it. I thought that the Supreme Court called it right. It was an eight to one call, so there's very little to say, well, boy, that was a close one. (laughs) Uh, And so let's talk about why the Supreme Court did not think it was a close one. Well, let me, I want to chime in because I I absolutely am fascinated by this case and this uh, particular topic. And um, it was the first time in about 50 years that the Supreme Court has weighed in in favor of uh, student free speech. And it brought me back to uh, Mary Beth Tinker, who was uh, wearing a black band to her eighth grade class in 1965. And, you know, that was the first statement that school children had a, um, a right to free speech and that their right to free speech did not end at the schoolhouse gate. And I, as I was thinking of that in this particular case, I said, wow, I said, we have uh, Michael Walker Jones, who's been... Uh, an educator and in education all of his life. We have uh, Natalia here today, who's a parent of school-age children, who's involved in public health and the impacts on on children. We have you, Peter, who is one who's in the business of publishing speech and and giving a a platform and a forum for people to speak. And And making sure we stay within the FCC law regarding shame. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You do that very right. well. Uh, and uh, you're going to see that uh, we can't use some of the words from that case today. And, and I'm a lawyer and a legislator, and uh, I think uh, we've got a good ensemble here today to talk about this. But why don't I talk about what happened? So Brandy Levy was in uh, high school 
and had tried out for the varsity cheerleading squad. And uh, she did not make the varsity cheerleading squad. And they felt that uh, she needed an additional year on the JV uh, team uh, and that they would uh, let her be in JV, but not varsity. Uh, and she was particularly nonplussed by the fact that uh, there was a freshman who made the varsity squad and she didn't. So as the court said, uh, Brandy did not accept the coach's decision with good grace. She was miffed. Uh, she, was, she was upset. And uh, that weekend, uh, she and a friend visited the Coco Hut. I don't know how many of you have been to the Coco Hut. It's a convenience store in, in her area. And uh, she used her uh, cell phone uh, to post photos on Snapchat. Now, Snapchat is a type of uh, application that lets you post pictures and videos. And it only lasts for about 24 hours. And then it, then it disappears. And in the first image that she posted on Snapchat, uh, she and her friend with middle fingers raised and uh, uh, giving a, a great sign of uh, support and uh, number oneness, enumerated several uh, curse words about school, softball, cheering, and everything. So she covered all grounds. And, and then the second one, uh, you know, uh, she wrote, it was a little cleaner, but uh, expressed her dissatisfaction. It says, love how me and another student get told we need a year of JV before we make varsity, but that doesn't matter to anyone else. And that's referring to that, that other freshman. So it wasn't graceful. But the question was, uh, and this was something that occurred at the Cocoa Hut, not at the uh, school. So it was off-campus speech. And, you know, uh, apparently one of her friends uh, used her technology to take pictures of the Snapchat. So it was preserved and uh, showed the pictures to her mother. And her mother happened to be the coach of the Varsity cheerleading squad. So you see how these Ruh -ruh. little small details and small <laughs> factoids that happen in everyday life end up being U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So uh, the the mother who was the coach took it to school officials and it became the topic of discussion during the algebra class. Algebra class, and at that point, uh, you know, everybody was uh, stirred up and uh, believed that uh, Brandy had violated a school uh, code about using offensive language. So more people were miffed. Yes. So she was uh, suspended for one year from cheerleading. Now. Today, Brandy's a college student, so uh, this has absolutely no impact on her life. That's how long it takes to wield itself. Uh, so she was not happy with her suspension. She tried to apologize to get herself back, but the school would have nothing, none of it. So her parents sued in the federal district court, and uh, they got a favorable decision in the U.S. district court. And then uh, the school district appealed to the uh, the circuit court of appeals and. Uh, again, the school district lost, and they upheld her right to free speech. And then it got to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court that issued a decision saying, you know, that uh, off-campus speech is is generally protected, and a school has a very high burden to show uh, how it would uh, or how it had impacted what is going on 
uh, in the classroom. And, uh, you know, they didn't set any general rules that uh, are instructive moving forward. They kind of tailored the decision to this particular case and said, the facts and circumstances of this case do not rise to the level where the school district should have a right to impose discipline on speech. But, you know, we're going to leave it for another set of circumstances to determine just how far that all goes. That's the only concerning thing about the decision. It doesn't give us some, some hard and fast rules. But, you know, it's, uh, it upholds free speech, and it says it emphatically that, uh, you know, as much, and, and I want to share one line as I, as I wrap up. Um, it says that America's public schools are the nurseries of democracy. Uh, representative democracy only works if we protect the marketplace of ideas. This free exchange facilitates an informed public opinion, which when transmitted to lawmakers helps produce laws that reflect the people's will. And that protection must include the protection of unpopular ideas, for popular ideas have less need for protection. And thus schools have a strong interest in ensuring that future generations understand the workings and practice of the well-known aphorism I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And I think that's a, a very good lesson to uh, impart on our students and teachers and administrators in the classrooms. And Jeff, I have a question. Is this about free speech or is it about where she said it? I am confused about the geography piece because that seems to be something that people have highlighted. Had she said it in you know, had she recorded it in the bathroom or the locker room of the gym on campus during school hours, would the outcome have been different? Because what you just quoted was about free speech and respecting ideas, but it seems to be that something about the location was key here. So can you explain that? I mean, the location and the geography of this was very important. And they use the doctrine of in loco, parent in loco parentis, which means that the school acts as a surrogate, surrogate parent when you're on school grounds mm -hmm. and has more ability to control your behavior while you're on school grounds mm -hmm. because they're acting as the parent in those circumstances. But geographically, when you're off school grounds, they wanna leave the policing of this type of behavior to the parents are more closely connected to what happens off school grounds. So geography is an important part of this, even though it is a free speech case, because the geography aspect gives less of a compelling interest by the school to intervene because it didn't happen on school grounds. You know, Does that help? Yeah, that's helpful. Although now you've triggered all these like questions in my mind. Oh my God, am I, am I giving schools the right to punish my child? Like, am I giving up my right as a parent yes. by sending my kid to public school? So maybe that's for a separate conversation. I was not aware that I well, was. Let me, yeah, well, go let ahead, me, Michael. Uh, well, as an educator, let me answer both of those for you. Yes and yes. <laughs> well, okay, that's clear. Okay. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me write that down. Okay. Yes, yes. Yes. We'll see you all next week. Okay, okay. bye-bye now. Uh, yes, as a parent, 
when you send your child to school and in loco parentis uh, is something actually that's taught in undergraduate school for aspiring teachers uh, because it comes with a huge level of responsibility and part of that responsibility. And don't forget that in the majority of almost every single instance, all children who go to or all students who attend school from high school to preschool are minors. So in loco parentis uh, was established as a means of, as Jeff points out, declaring that the school acts as the parent when you're on their school grounds in almost every single prospect or perspective that includes punishment. Now, the courts over the years, uh, and let me just throw this in real quick, just to make sure that when I say punishment, the courts have been clear to set boundaries regarding that punishment. As you may recall, back in the 40s and 50s, the schools could almost with impunity take your child, bend them over a chair and spank the whatever of them. Mm. And that particular uh, authority under local parentis has been modified and narrowed. Uh, and a lot of rules have been made, as a matter of fact, around punishment and what type of punishment. The First Amendment aspect of this, too, has in some instances been narrowed. And that's why this case is important. And believe it or not, like Jeff, I was a little surprised at two things. One, how clear the majority was in terms of declaring that the child had free speech rights. But also in the dissent, which was by Clarence Thomas, he clearly says, I'm dissenting because we actually should start establishing some rules about location. And he indicated that part of the problem is social media, because social media now, as he says, has complicated not only location, but also who's responsible uh, at any given point for what you post as a minor. Now, I also agree, too, that the court, as Jeff said, didn't give any clear-cut uh, test or rules. And I think what they did, though, was to say, we're looking forward to cases in the future. And this is interesting when the court does this. We're looking for forward to cases in the future that will help us to establish those rules. So, albeit it was a very narrow decision, they have signaled that, hey, kids, keep bringing these cases up here so we can tell you what rights you have and what rights you don't have. And school districts, be careful, because as these cases come up here, we're going to tell you what your responsibilities are and what responsibilities you don't have. So in that instance, too, it was a very interesting case. It's still First Amendment, as Jeff points out. Mm -hmm. uh, but you as a parent, Nantalia, at this point, really have a lot of uh, percolating to do as to what is it that I teach my children about what they can say at school, away from school. And then as Jeff points out, do I become uh, the free speech uh, police in my household, which you have that right. You can determine whether or not your children can say or do certain things, even though under the constitution, it says it all, but minors are not typically afforded the ability to say or do anything under, uh, under parental rule. You brought up some interesting points also uh, about uh, locus 
um, and cyberspace, uh, in Thomas's opinion. Uh, but uh, there's another element here. When you're talking about in loco parentis, I'll date myself here, way back in the Paleozoic era when everybody smoked, you know, students couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, students couldn't wait to light up a cigarette. Uh, and because I took the bus to school, you know, they would be off school grounds and there was like this imaginary devising line, you know, imaginal line, whatever. They cross it and they would light up. So clearly the school had every right to keep kids from smoking on school grounds. Uh, but they also understood that that right was bounded by geography. Clear cut case. And it's a public health issue. Now here we have a case where uh, not only is the location ephemeral, call it what digital, call it what you will, but also in this case, she is actually besmirching the school. This is rather than a damage to the self, it is a damage to the school itself. And that's where the school has to, I think, exercise some serious restraint with respect to its responses. And that's another element of this that's unlike other things that schools would do under the notion of in loco parentis. The point you're making is one that I'm harking back now to some of the cases that deal with social media and bullying. Mm. And that was mentioned, by the way, in many of the articles about this, bullying yeah, and, and in the decision itself. They yeah. just said if, if this was involving bullying and putting a student in danger, uh, the location may not matter. And therein lies, I think, the real sort of crux of the free speech issue here for minors. Location in this particular instance matters. The intent, because I think the court was trying to get at, well, what was her intent? She did not intend for this particular piece, one, to be long lasting, which is the Instagram portion of it. Right. And the second part is. Snapchat. She did, uh, I'm sorry, Snapchat, <laughs> uh, uh, not Instagram. I, I do confuse my social media from time to time. Uh, uh, but. It's okay. It's like, it's like, it's like Bill Belichick snap face. Yeah. I'm going to tweet your statement, Michael. Do you mind? Yeah, uh, please, (laughs) please. Uh, And then she didn't intend for this to be out there for the whole world because she only uh, Snapchatted to a small group of 250. And it's amazing to me how in many ways we have not dealt with either the practical, the operational, nor the legal side of social media. And as a result, I can only imagine my children came up just before the sort of outbreak of social media. But I can only imagine, Natalia, what you're facing now with regard to, again, training and teaching your children as they get older, uh, again, what the responsibilities they will have around this. And the court... I'm not sure the courts are really going to be helpful here uh, because when we start parsing geography uh, the way that they did, I think, uh, uh, and goodness, I need probably to wash my mouth out when I say this, I actually see some clarity in Clarence Thomas's dissent. Well, hey, Michael, I want to remind you, I (laughs) I want to remind you because you brought up corporal punishment uh, earlier. Uh, there is a dissent uh, from a prior case that was written by Justice Thomas where he called for the return of corporal punishment. So yes, don't be so that. enamored with his writings. There's, <laughs> there's something a bit off kilter. Uh, you, you know, You're right, Jeff. 
Yeah, I, uh, you're right. Yeah, I do uh, want to offer some um, some solace to Natalia. If you think you're sending your kids to a place where uh, they do not have protected speech, and and that's where I think it's important. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Mary Beth Tinker and her black armband that she wore uh, to her eighth grade classes um, at Warren Harding Junior High School in Des Moines, Iowa. And, uh, you know, 1965 is the context, and the country was engaged uh, in an unpopular war. And she wore this black armband to school as a symbol of mourning for those who were dying in the Vietnam War and, uh, and, and, and expressed support for a truce and a ceasefire. But when she got to school that day, this is December 16th of 1965, she was told that she was violating a, a school board edict and she was summoned to the principal's office and uh, she was told she had to remove the armband and she was suspended from school for five days, cited as unpatriotic by the school board president and referred to as a, a communist by other students. And she even received death threats from, from people in her community. And she challenged that suspension and in the federal court and she initially lost in the, in the uh, district court. And uh, she also lost again at, at a federal appeals court. And the only place left for her uh, was the United States Supreme Court. And in February of 1969, when, when Mary Beth was about to graduate high school, the US Supreme Court said that Mary could in fact wear that armband because she was expressing a protected right under the First Amendment to the Constitution. And uh, that's where the famous phrase that public school students do not shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. And that's a, it's a very important decision and uh, it has stood the test of time. And uh, so kids do have a right of free speech uh, when they go there. But uh, in the case of uh, Brandy Levy, say she had stood up in a classroom and used those expletives towards the school, towards the teacher, towards the, 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 the cheerleading coach, that would be a violation of, uh, of a school rule. And I think she'd be appropriately disciplined because she was disruptive in the classroom. And that's a whole different set of circumstances, as, as Michael had pointed out, with the Snapchat that's intended to go away uh, very quickly. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of cases that test the limits. Uh, I was on the school committee in Franklin in the, uh, in the early 2000s, and social media was becoming uh, much more prevalent. And we were grappling with these issues on a day-to-day -day basis and trying to develop a policy for how we would handle speech that occurred in social media, which was typically off campus, and how does that impact uh, what's going on in the classroom? And, and I, I do recall the very difficult balancing act uh, that we went through, and there was a lot of talk about, you know, this is important that kids understand the marketplace of ideas and that they understand that uh, they do have a right to speak, but there are some consequences that they also should understand uh, when they do raise their voice or, or speak uh, poorly and, and without 
grace and without dignity. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, that aphorism there, you know, I may not agree with what you say, but I'll defend to your, uh, to my death, your right to say it. It's a struggle to find what's, what's appropriate in there. And, you know, I've handled some free speech cases in my career that have involved some very unpopular things that people have said. And I don't necessarily agree with what they said, but my God, I want them to have that ability to say it so that we, we have free expression going, going around. And as much as I hate some of the things I hear in today's public discourse, I still would protect the right of people uh, to say it because you know what? That's what helps us arrive to better decisions. There's a great phrase, an aphorism that I like. Uh, I heard it about 10 years ago. Uh, it is attributed to a person named Sai Baba and it is simply, when you speak, is it kind? Is it necessary? Or does it improve upon the silence? And I would hold up that notion as a guiding principle to 13-year-olds and up who are just entering into the internet world and trying to find their way through it and, and not necessarily thinking clearly what they're saying. Um, you know, the, the social media platforms have really had a hands-off uh, approach with all of this. And, and, you know, they say, hey, not us, not our job. But I would love them to explore some middle ground, just as there is software that can automatically analyze the 252 bad words that people can say in the English language for deletion. It would be interesting to comb the inbound text that somebody wants to post and not delete, not censor, not edit, not do anything. But just as you hit send, say, is this something you really want to say? And then, you know, five seconds later, that little message goes away. And you either affirm, yeah, I really mean it, or maybe I want to rethink it. It doesn't disrupt anybody's right to speak, but it gives them pause to reflect. And I think social media would go a long way with just having that pause to reflect function in cases where things might be extremely controversial or flagged as fundamentally untruths, call them what you will. But social media, unfortunately, has given all of us the opportunity to let our darker angels run free because we feel anonymous, we feel invulnerable, we feel like there are no consequences. And you know, some people experience the consequences the hard way. Some don't care, call it what you will. But I just think that some type of, uh, I don't know, moderation, mediation, that doesn't impinge upon people's right to say what they want to say would be a nice feature built into social media platforms. I've mused about this for a long time. Like, could you crowdsource the opinion? And even that is difficult. In other words, if people had an opportunity to upvote or downvote what you were saying, but at some cost to themselves, if they downvoted it, if they really felt passionate about you or off the rails, you know, it, it presents armies of downvoters of people who want to attack you. And suddenly you have political parties engaged in that kind of warring effort with fake accounts. So 
I know I'm getting a little obscure here, but trying to find a solution for the platforms is really, really difficult. So I understand the fact that it's almost a third rail issue that they've wanted to stay away from. It's a tough call, but you know, that's where we are. So for me as a parent, I have no problem with curse words, you know, like F school or whatever that doesn't to me trigger uh, a real concern. My concern is bullying and actual um, hate language against somebody because of their race, their sexuality, their identity, their weight, you know, all of that happens. And it's interesting. Some data say that parents think that about 10% of their, like 10% of parents thinks their kid has ever been bullied on social media. But when you ask kids, it's about 40% who report that they have been. There's a big disconnect. And, you know, as parents, it's hard, especially at the age of 12, 13, 14, to even have those communications. And I speak now as a public health person, we have seen like suicides even. Mm. We have seen, you know, anorexia and other eating disorders and behavioral issues, but as far as suicide. And so it is concerning. And where is that fine line between hate language, bullying, the right to speech, and what the real consequence is, which is uh, a real health impact on kids. And it troubles me. So I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time, Pete, because in terms of like, if it was just identifying, you know, the F word, for example, I don't, right. I don't care. I, you know, I have an eight-year-old and I didn't know she knew the word, but she was running and stubbed her toe and said, F. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I laughed. I said, that is the appropriate use of the word. I don't want you using it, but that is the appropriate that is so use of the word. Of you. Oh yeah. my goodness. <laughs> and, you know, she's never used it before, but it was like, I stubbed my toe and then she yelled that. And I was like, okay, that's pretty funny that my eight year old knows the word. Did she get it? I've that never from heard you? her. Use- she must have gotten it for me. I must oh, have. Oh, like- <laughs> nice. I, I use good language most show. of the time, but maybe if I fall or stub my toe or do something like that. I, I probably have some profanity there. But I feel like appropriate use of profanity is appropriate. But if it's directed at and, and directed at, you know, systems or schools or, you know, McDonald's or something like that, I don't have a problem with you're not. But if it's directed at an individual, I do. And and that's where I actually think that that line between free speech and hate speech, I find that Europe and other countries that are more kind of, you know, you're not going to speak about a religious group or an ethnic minority in, in these terms. I feel a little bit more, you know, having grown up in Europe, a little bit more affinity to that. And so I, I know, Jeff, you said you have defended people who you've disagreed with. I don't know if I could defend someone who said something so hateful to, to a group um, who I feel like is already oppressed by our system. Well, if well, I it, could, yeah. if I could jump in here on that, because there are, uh, let's take it out of the realm of schools right after this comment of mine, which is free speech has been uh, limited by school districts, uh, not necessarily, uh, and going back to the Tinker case, when students in some school districts where Black Lives Matter t-shirts, for example, some administrators have taken it upon themselves to say that's disruptive to the school process because it invokes XYZ emotions or behaviors. And they've said to those students, take those shirts off or turn them inside out. And similarly, with other kinds of expressive t-shirts, administrators have, and teachers, I don't mean administrators alone, but school officials have taken it upon themselves to censor that speech on the part of students who wear those expressive t-shirts. But let's move outside of the school with almost the same 
set of uh, instances and facts. And let me show you how the court deals with this. Let's say that I am an employee of the ABC Acme uh, internet uh, or uh, uh, IT company. And while I'm at the bar, I start texting things that disparage ABC IT company. And not only that, but I then start to tell my friends how bad that company is. And then when I go to a meeting of town council, I say to town council, this company is so bad. Here's what they've been doing. And I disparage the company publicly there. When I go to work the next day or, uh, and the company says to me, you know, Michael, uh, you've disparaged this company. We don't accept that you're fired. Most folks don't know that your free speech limitations, you can say all you want. You can go and express all of that, but your employer has the ability to say, well, we don't like that speech from you as an employee. Let me bring it home even a little closer. There were a number of people whose pictures were portrayed when they stormed the Capitol building on January 6th. And they were surprised when they got back to their towns and tried to go to work that people had seen them and their employer said, nope, we don't want people who demonstrate like that and disparage this company. So you're fired. And having worked in a union environment, I must tell you that almost in every single one of those situations where we were defending a person who disparaged their employer publicly and without any kind of provocation, without a redress of grievance, and the employer terminated them, we lost those cases. Even though the employee kept screaming at us as re their representatives, but don't I have a free speech right? And we would have to tell them, yes, you do. But your employer does not have the obligation to keep employing you when you use speech that disparages even the employer or you have actions that uh, reflect poorly upon the company. And that's because the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And, and that's the government. The government can't infringe on your free speech, but that doesn't require a, a private entity, uh, your employer, to, you know, they can infringe your right to speak. I mean, we see it uh, in the way um, professional athletes are treated in terms of what they can say and what they can do when they're wearing the uniform of a particular team. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It, one of the things I want to, I want to just touch upon, and I know that Natalia was uh, intimating towards this is we ought to consider what the impact of all of this is on the student, him or herself. And um, I think of what courage and the courage of the convictions that it takes for a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old to stand up for themselves in the context of the free speech. And for this, for this segment, I, I, wanna, I wanna talk about um, Ellery Shemp, 
And Ellery Shemp was a student in a high school in Pennsylvania who at the time, and we're talking uh, 1958 or 56, somewhere in the late 50s, where he was required every day when he go, go, went to school, he was required to read from the Bible before the start of the school day. And he just didn't think that was right. And uh, I bring up Ellery Shemp because it's one of the classic uh, First Amendment in schools cases from the 1960s. But I also bring him up because a few years ago, probably five or six years ago, I was sitting in a hearing for the Education Committee. Uh, and, you know, hundreds of bills are filed involving education in Massachusetts. And, and someone had filed a bill uh, requiring Bible readings in schools in Massachusetts. And this is, uh, this is like 2014, 2015. I couldn't believe that somebody would file that bill, but uh, you know, as we know, anybody has a right to file a bill and every bill is entitled to a hearing. But on that particular day, I was sitting uh, as part of the ed education committee and, and a, a, an old man in his seventies with gray hair came up to the uh, microphone to testify. And he began by saying, hello, my name is Ellery Shemp and I'm here to testify in opposition to the requirement of Bibles in school. You know, immediately, my radar went off, and uh, as soon as he was done speaking, he didn't identify him as the lead plaintiff in this particular case, but I recognized that name because Ellery Shemp is not a common name. So uh, I saw him walk out of the hearing room. I chased him down the hallway, and I said, Sir, sir, are you the Ellery Shemp? who was the plaintiff in the, the uh, Shemp versus Abington School District case. And he said, I, I am. I said, well, I said, that was a case in a Pennsylvania high school. And I said, what are you doing here in Massachusetts? And uh, he told me how he had moved to Massachusetts. And I said, would you get together for coffee with me and talk to me about what you went through uh, in, in your experience with that? And uh, we did have that coffee. And I just want to share with you the letter that he wrote that got this all all going because he he had a scrapbook that he had kept with all of the things that uh, he had done with that case and he ended up winning that case and uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said that uh, requiring students to read from the Bible was an infringement of their First Amendment rights but the letter he wrote was to the American Civil Liberties Union, and he said, gentlemen, as a student in my junior year at Abington Senior High School, I would very greatly appreciate informa any information that you might send regarding possible union action and or aid in testing the constitutionality of Pennsylvania law, which arbitrarily and seemingly righteously and unconstitutionally compels the Bible to be read in our public school system. I thank you for any help you might offer in freeing American youth in Pennsylvania from this gross violation of their religious rights as guaranteed in the first and foremost amendment in our United States Constitution. Sincerely yours, Ellery Shemp. And he enclosed a $10 bill to help pay for any costs. And, you know, the Civil Liberties Union took on his case, uh, took it through the federal court system and got it to the United States Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, he was victorious in that case. And he also shared with me all of the 
fan mail that his family had received. He also shared with me the hate mail that his family had received and the death wishes that his family had received. And uh, they ended up having to move out of that house because so many people had come to it. And, and I just said to him, I said, uh, Ellery, I said, you are one of the most courageous people uh, I have ever met. And it's just an honor to sit in a room with you. And I, I gave him a citation from the House of Representatives uh, for, for upholding the courage of, of his convictions. And this is something that he has lived with his entire life. And I didn't want this show to go uh, on without considering what impact it has. Mary Beth Tinker, forever known for wearing that black, black armband, and Brandy Levy will forever be known, and she's a, a, a college student today. And these are legacies uh, that they have uh, you know, taken on at such an early age, and, but they have ordinary events that have absolutely uh, transformed uh, the law of our nation and how we view uh, particular transactions. And uh, I just thought I would share that uh, and uh, would love to hear your reaction. Some people are born to greatness. Some people have greatness thrust upon them. There you go. And that, and with that comes the burden of greatness. That's a remarkable story. And I'm, uh, I'm so pleased. Uh, and it's one of the things that I will say to our listeners that intrigues me every week when we get together uh, because collectively some of our experiences demonstrate the resilience of our people um, and the courage of our people and the effort that all of us sometimes uh, I think Pete as you said uh, we have that the issues thrust upon us but we challenge and meet them with courage um, exactly and I am just uh, amazed at uh, uh, some of the people that I run into on all kinds of topics. But this is one of the things that I enjoy about this program. And I hope that there is a possibility that for our listeners, uh, Jeff, you might be able to, if, if possible, if he gave you permission to uh, make a copy and post his letter along with this program so people can see his original hand. I mean, that's a high school student. Uh, who's writing this and the eloquency of it, just the mm. way it's written. Uh, but the underpinning of the courage too is just amazing. Yeah. For, for a kid, it just, it just amazed me. And uh, I was so thrilled in meeting him. I, I have a book uh, called uh, the courts, kids and the constitution. And, and his case is one of the uh, chapters in the book. And uh, I brought it with me and I said, would you please autograph this, uh, this book for me? Uh, he, he was only too happy to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping he's still around. Uh, perhaps we could bring him on to our show and uh, he can talk from That'd his fun. Own experience. Uh, exactly. I also uh, just want to harken back to another point you brought up, Jeff, about sports figures and whatnot. You know, rewinding to a time slightly before Black Lives Matter. Uh, when Colin Kaepernick took a knee. I remember a few days later, I was you know, at a small dinner gathering with friends. One of the attorneys, uh, prominent, decided to speak about this. And he goes, you know, you know, fine, he's protesting, but my God, this is football. <laughs> As though, you know, he had entered into the sanctum sanctorum of the stadium 
and and somehow Colin Kaepernick had committed this this grievous mortal sin. And I thought when I saw the protest, which I did uh, witness, um, I didn't think much of it other than okay, right on. You know, he's he's making a statement, and I thought in a somewhat thoughtful way. And you know, the lawyer went on to talk about you know it should be done elsewhere, not in the state of not, but. The whole point of protest is that protest is innately awkward. Protest is best executed in the most awkward circumstance. He wasn't protesting the national anthem. He wasn't protesting football. But in that extremely public forum, the protest had power. And clearly at that time, the NFL, I felt, was tone deaf. I looked at my friend and I said, ultimately, Somewhere in the future, history will look back on you and realize for you that you are on the wrong side of the argument. And, you know, we've seen Colin basically become, you know, I would say a hero, even, you know, small age, but a hero nonetheless. And, and quite frankly, has been forced to sacrifice to stick by his beliefs. That was a big call. You know, and I'm going to prognosticate forward here just a bit. And I think this might be an interesting note for us to uh, to take a look at as we uh, come to closely uh, completing our uh, our segment today. And that is, uh, and I'm going to throw this out to Natalia, because let's talk about free speech in the face of a pandemic, because I know this is going to come up. There are probably a number of school districts right now that are contemplating do we require our students, especially those that have been already authorized, do we require them to be vaccinated prior to returning to school? And I've been surprised, uh, especially in my dealings with higher ed institutions, that the administration and faculties of those institutions, albeit Almost every single campus that I've stepped on in the last uh, six weeks have required all of their staff and faculty uh, administration to be vaccinated. They are not going to require that their students be vaccinated. They're going to make every effort to encourage them, but they're not going to require it. I don't know what's driving that, but I do know that at the K-12 level now, we're going to see some different types of approaches in some places where they're going to require it as a yeah. matter of free speech. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, because oh, I, I was, like your comments about, it, you know, but, but link it back to free speech, because I do think it's maybe a separate conversation for free speech. I mean, I'm concerned about the um, misinformation around the vaccine mm. and, you know, do we allow social media has been spreading real misinformation and, and how does that fit in? I do think we should have a separate conversation around you know, pandemics and what authority should public health and other officials have. You know, I, I work at Harvard University. I'm I'm a director at a center there. And Harvard has asked all students, all staff, all faculty, everyone to be vaccinated unless they have a medical exemption. And I do think it's different for younger kids. Um, and a lot of people are highlighting that you know, the vaccines are approved through an FDA exception, not the main process. So they're using that as an argument. 
But the broader question on free speech, I think, is around misinformation. And, and a question to you, Michael, and to Jeff is, you know, will students say they're in a school that is conservative on, say, climate change or on reproductive rights, on, you know, gender kind of, you know, can students say, I'm not going to do this assignment or no, you are teaching me? Like, how does free speech and curriculum come together and what rights do students have to, to refuse learning? Or I, I don't know, I haven't... You know, my kids are young and we live in Massachusetts, so obviously I, I don't think they have those same, but I'm sure students across the U.S. are facing real misinformation um, and where does free speech, and, and similarly, that's where misinformation around COVID vaccines comes in because it's, it's true, it's real, and it can harm, especially on, on the COVID front. You know, that's fascinating because you're, uh, and I think both of those uh, the one on vaccination and then the one on misinformation, those two perspectives. Uh, and then finally, Natalia, your comment, and it makes me wonder how it is that we can have some of our politicians. And here's where I think another one of the issues of free speech is going to arise. How can we have government trying to dictate what can and cannot be taught especially if it's factual, can the government limit uh, the presentation of factual information to students or to its citizens, or as was demonstrated yesterday, even in the military? So this issue has tremendous ramifications. And I think you're right. We probably need a part two at some point to explore free speech uh, in some of its other iterations in terms of how it impacts not just our health, uh, but also our distribution of information, our curriculum, both at the K-12 and the college level. And uh, I'd like to sort of throw back, uh, Jeff, that piece that, that Justice Breyer wrote when he said that, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, our schools, and I would imagine he's talking about all of our schools, are the nurseries for uh, free speech and its ramifications in our democracy. It's, you know, it's, in the, I think I said it earlier, it's an incredibly delicate balancing act. Um, but, you know, in Massachusetts, uh, curriculum is determined and decided by local school committees. And there are actually policies in place at the local level which deal with challenges to the curriculum and how they're dealt with. And if you look, uh, for example, if you go to the Franklin School Committee website, you'll see the policy manual uh, where uh, the process is outlined for how you can challenge curriculum. And uh, I can tell you that uh, there's a debate going on right now on Beacon Hill about uh, sex education and what should be taught uh, as part of that curriculum. And the debate is wild on both sides and uh, very emotionally charged about what is appropriate or inappropriate. And uh, so uh, we may be dealing with that issue uh, in this particular session. And, uh, and I can recall back from my school committee days, uh, a young woman uh, had put on, well, actually the school put on an art display at Franklin High School. And one young woman artist uh, had her piece was a flag of the United States of America 
where she had burned around the edges of it. Uh, and her message was that uh, the, the union is not for everyone, and there are folks who are on the edges who are getting burned. And that evoked incredible controversy. And, uh, you know, it came, I remember it coming to the uh, school committee about the question of whether that piece of art should be removed from the property. And uh, as you can well imagine, I took the First Amendment approach and said, no, that young lady is conveying a message through her art. And we have no place in taking it down. Uh, and it, it became so controversial. I remember it, it was uh, in the newspaper, uh, front page of the paper about uh, this particular piece of art. And I even recall being asked to go on the uh, uh, Dan Ray's show on WBZ radio. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, verbally assaulting me saying, you know, how can you uphold, you know, this type of art? And I said, it, it's, it's free speech. It's, it's First Amendment. It's, it's conveying a message. What lesson are we going to give to our kids if we don't give them the ability to say what's on their mind? We may be offended by what we see, but you know something? She's delivering a message. She's telling how she feels, and she's portraying it through a piece of art. And I can, cannot think of taking that piece of art down. It wasn't a popular decision, but uh, you know, I think that student felt uh, supported, and uh, I went so far as to uh, arrange a meeting between uh, the most vocal opponent of that piece of art and the student herself, attempting to put them into the same room and talk to one another about how they feel and how that piece of art uh, makes each other feel. Um, the conversation didn't take place. We had them both in separate rooms and we, we went back like mediators uh, delivering the message. Uh, but uh, that was a remarkable lesson uh, for me uh, in the First Amendment and uh, I think a remarkable lesson for the community as well. I'm going to uh, sort of sum up here with one last uh, provocative question as we wrap up our show today. Earlier in the program, you mentioned that the school might look at a Black Lives Matter t-shirt and say, turn it inside out, which gets us to the question, what kind of offense would someone take to the phrase, Calb Savile Sredum, when the print comes through in reverse? You know, I, I have to put the unaskable questions out there because that's part of my job. Oh, uh, what an image. <laughs> <laughs> it only makes sense in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, yes, indeed. Um, so for our panel, for Representative Jeff Roy, Dr. Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, I am Peter J. Thank you for joining us today on our insightful discussion on the First Amendment. And I look forward to you having join us again next week. And until then, if you have a thought, We'd love to hear it. You can contact us at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. We'd love to share your opinion with everyone else. Thank you for listening. This is Franklin Public Radio. Mm -hmm.